والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين Committing sin or falling into disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, something that we all fall victim to. And the danger of committing sin is that sometimes we create a habit out of it. And it makes it very difficult for us to shake. And so what I'm going to talk about to this morning, inshallah ta'ala, is five ways to help break bad habits. Bad habits, I mean acts of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oftentimes we hear people just say, fear Allah. They give us a very abstract, you know, piece of admonition. And for everybody, that doesn't work. Just to simply say to the person, fear Allah, and just think that that somehow magically is supposed to just make the person stop. And what we are in dire need of in this day and time is practical solutions to ridding ourselves of some of these things that we've done to ourselves. So the first thing that we need to, that we can implement to help us stop committing sin is to not necessarily punish ourselves, but to make the sins that we commit, make ourselves accountable for the sins that we commit. Opposed to just saying astaghfirullah and walk away from it and, and just think that everything is okay. But the sin should have some level of impact on us to make us stop. I'll give you an example. It was mentioned about one of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Talha al-Ansari. Kana yusalli fi bustani dhati yawmin. Wara'a tayran yakhruju min bayni shajar. فتعلقت عيناه بالطير حتى نسي كم صلى فذهب إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو يبكي يبكي على نسيانه في الصلاة وأين نحن اليوم من هذا نسينا كثيرا كم صلى ركع ركعتين كم فاتتنا ركع ركعتين ما يهمنا نسجد مرتين ونمشي ما أما هذا ذهب إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو يبكي فقال يا رسول الله إني انشغلت بالطائر وبالطير وأنا في البستان حتى نسيت كم صليت فإني أجعل هذا البستان لك صدقة لعل الله جل وعلا أن يغفر لي لعل الله جل وعلا أن يغفر فضعه حيثما شئت This companion Talha He said that I was in my garden one day praying And as I'm making salah I notice a bird flying in and out of the trees While I'm praying and my eye became attached to the bird as it's, you know, going in and out of the tree so beautifully until I forgot how many rakahs I prayed. I forgot how many rakahs I prayed. 
He said, so when I finished, I went to the Prophet ﷺ while I was crying, upset that I allowed myself to be preoccupied while I was in my prayer, having a discussion with Rabbul Alameen. And he said to the Prophet ﷺ that, you know, I was in my prayer in my garden and my eyes became attached to a bird that was flying in and out of the tree and I forgot how many rakahs I prayed. He said, so I'm going to give you the entire bustan. I'm going to give you the entire garden as a sadaqah. Take it, O Messenger of Allah, as a sadaqah. Perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive me for forgetting how many rakahs I prayed in my prayer. We commit a, a sin with something and then we get to keep the thing that we sinned with. Opposed to allowing it to, you know, put so much pressure on us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرَّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّوا That you will never attain righteousness until you spin from what you love. There has to be some pain there. You don't get to walk away and say, I stuff with Allah and just walk away from the sin, and that's it. The Prophet sallallahu he said, anadma tawbah. That remorse is the essence of tawbah. If you don't feel bad, you don't feel remorseful for what you did, then your tawbah is incomplete. How can you say, I stuff with Allah and walk away as if it's nothing, and you, you didn't feel anything? There was no pain attached to it. That is not Toba. Another example. One of the great scholars of the past, Ibn Wahab, he said, Kuntu He said that I used to have a bad habit of backbiting people. <clears throat> he said, he said, I used to have a bad habit of backbiting people. And this is something that we all fall victim to, one way or another. Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala was asked, He was asked, does backbiting ruin your fast? And Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala said, if that was the case, then none of us would be fasting. Because we all fall victim to backbiting. He said, but I made an oath. نظرت, I took an oath. Every time that I backbit someone, I would fast a day. You want to break a habit? It's the best way to break a habit. Allow the habit, the sin that you are committing, allow it to cause you so much pain that you stop. He said, so I took an oath that every time I backbit someone, I would fast for a day. So what happened? He said, فَأَجْهَدَنِي ذَلِكَ فَكُنْتُ أَخْتَابَ يَوْمًا وَأَسُومَ يَوْمًا He said, and this uh, eventually it burned me out. It had a toll, took a toll on me because I would backbite someone one day and then I would fast another day, backbite one, someone one day, fast another day. And through this process, it began to take a toll on me. He said, Allah <laughs> 
He said, so I took another oath that every time I backbit someone, I would give away a dinar. I would give away a silver coin. I would give away a coin of my money. And he said, because of my love of money, I ended up giving up backbiting. I stopped. This is something practical that we can do right now. Every time I do this, I'm going to give $50 away of my money, sadaqa. And of course, we love money, right? We love money. So because of our love of money, perhaps we will give up the sin. This is what I'm talking about. Practical implementation. Things that you can begin doing right now in your life to help you stop. You hear people talk about, and you know, we're sitting here right on the cusp of 2018 and you hear everybody talking about their new year's resolution and this new year I'm going to do this and this new year I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that come the middle of the year the, the three quarters of the year haven't done anything all of these resolutions that everyone is making I'm going to do this for the new year I'm not going to do that to the new year but there's nothing practical behind that. It's just kalam. It's just speech that we say. It sounds good. It sounds good. But there's nothing behind those words that are going to back it. And we've become a nation of people. We've become a society of people that just utters words that have no meaning behind it. Our words should have meaning. Or else we look at we look like hypocrites. We look like hypocritical people who say things that they do not do. And as we know from the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Kabra Muktan Endalai that it is hateful in the sight of God that you say something that you do not do. Why do you say what you don't do? That's something that is abhorrent in our religion. So that's number one. And then of course reward yourself when you're able to overcome that particular trial. Number two, to help us get rid of sin, things, practical things that we can do to get rid of sin, that if you change nothing, nothing will change. If you change nothing, nothing will change. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Inna Allah la yughayyiru ma bi qawmin hatta yughayyiru ma bi anfusihim. That Allah will not change the condition of a people until at first they change. You have to initiate. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees from you sidq wal ikhlas, sees that you are sincere in your attempt, then He will make it easy for you. But you can't sit from a place of stagnation and say, Rabbi yassir amri. Oh Allah, make my affair easy. And you haven't done anything to assist in making that path easy. That Allah will not change the condition of the people until at first they change. It has to start with you. If you change nothing, nothing will change. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, مَنْ يَسْتَعْفِفْ يُعِفْهُ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ يَسْتَغْنِي يُغْنِهِ اللَّهِ 
That whoever seeks to be he seeks to be chaste. And this is for our young people who feel the need to have a boyfriend, girlfriend. You can't just be alone. You have to have someone in your life, no matter how sinful the situation is. I can't be single. I can't be alone. And that's another problem in this day and time that we're living in, is that people feel that being by themselves is somehow some type of curse. There was a time in the past when people used to isolate themselves from the rest of the world and contemplate around uh, about the world around them. And today, we don't have any time to contemplate and reflect on anything because we're constantly being engaged. This is what creates ADD, attention deficit disorder. You can't focus. You can't pay attention to anything. This is why our children can't focus in school because they go from app to app, from screen to screen, from this to this, and so they're constantly being engaged. Movies that tap into your subliminal so you no longer have to use the frontal lobe of making decisions. You can just sit and watch and be entertained. And then when you come into a classroom setting where there's education being, being given, knowledge being disseminated, we can't focus. Jumu'ah. We can't focus because while the khatib is giving the khutbah, we're on our cell phone texting. We have to constantly be engaged. This is a problem. He said, Man Whoever seeks to be chaste, then Allah will make him chaste. But that has to come from you. Many of our teenage children are constantly engaged in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, ruining their future opportunities to actually experience true love. When your heart is constantly being stimulated by temporary relationships when it comes time for you to be in a real relationship you think it's a temporary relationship you follow me you don't know how to function the moment things get tough or rough I'm out you're divorced I went out it's the it's the instant gratification that we're looking for because this is what we've been accustomed to men staff if you're Whoever seeks to be chaste, then Allah will bless him with chastity. And another thing that will help with that, with our young people, is to understand that every boy or girl, every man or woman that you sleep with, you are offending someone else. A young boy came to the Prophet ﷺ, asking the Prophet ﷺ permission to commit zina. He said, I can do everything that the religion says. Just give me permission to commit zina, fornication. The Prophet وسلم, he didn't approach the situation by saying, Astaghfirullah, it's haram, how dare you ask me something like this? No, he understand he was dealing with young people. And being young sometimes, it means that you lack empathy. Young people lack empathy. They don't understand how their actions affect other people. They don't figure that out until they become parents and understand that they have to now care for someone else. It doesn't, 
usually happen with marriage because even in our marriages, many of our young people are very selfish even in their marriages. We don't realize the power of empathy until we have children ourselves and realize that we actually have to care for another human being. We have to be concerned about the feelings of another human being other than ourselves. So the Prophet asked the young boy, he said, Alaka um, do you have a mother? He said, would you like someone to commit zina with your mother? Powerful. It's to make him become empathetic, to think about how your actions are going to affect someone else. And would you want that done to you? He said, I would like that he said, then likewise, people have mothers and they don't want people to commit fornication with their mothers. He said, Alaka ukht, do you have a sister? He said, yes. He said, I would like Would you like someone to commit zina with your sister? He said, then likewise, people have sisters and they don't want people to commit zina with their sisters. Do you have an aunt? He said, yes. He said, would you like someone to do that with your aunt? He said, then likewise, people have aunts. Until, the, until he got it. He understood what the Prophet ﷺ was trying to tell him. The Prophet didn't have to tell him it was haram. Right? For our parents to understand that when you're talking to your children about halal and haram, they don't understand that language. They've been hearing it all of their lives. It's haram. Naya Jews, what does that even mean? What does it being haram mean? Why? We tell our daughters, it's haram to go outside without your hijab on. Why? Astaghfirullah. She can't ask why? Why is it haram for her to go outside without her hijab on? Because you are a queen. And queens don't step out of their castle without their crown on. That's why. Teach them to respect themselves. And the more that you respect yourself, the more that others will respect you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya Nisa and Nabi, Lestunnaka ahadam min Nisa. O women of the Prophet, you are not like any other women. You are not like any other women. When you step out of this home, you are not like the rest of the women that you see. Teach them to have dignity about themselves. Nonetheless, he said, "Men yastaghfif yu'fuhullah, wa men yastaghni yugnihi Allah." And whoever seeks to be self-sufficient, not begging people, then Allah will make you rich. Not rich in terms of money, rich in terms of self-worth. When you understand who you are, see if you don't value yourself, then no one else will value you. Right? This is why you go to a job interview knowing that you graduated from a university with this degree, that degree, you have this expertise and you have someone make you an offer that you are, that, uh, that is less than what you are worth. And you accept it because you are in dire need of a job and they know that you are in need of a job. You sold yourself for less than what you're worth. When you're vulnerable, other people can see your vulnerability. Our religion teaches us to have dignity. Man yastaghni, yukni illa. 
that whoever seeks to be self-sufficient, then Allah will make them self-sufficient. But there has to be a part starting from you. That I, I'm not going to ask anybody for anything. I'm only going to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first. And this is what the Prophet sallallahu was trying to teach Ibn Abbas. He said, Ya ghulam, inni u'allimuka kalimat. He said, oh young boy, I'm going to teach you some jewels. I'm going to give you some life lessons. Pay attention. He said, sa'alta, fas'alillah. That if you ask, you only ask God. When you seek help, you only seek the help of God. Then he told him, he said, If a whole entire nation gathered together to harm you with something, they would only be able to harm you with what Allah had already decreed for you to be harmed with. Powerful to teach a child this concept. At a young age, they grow up having dignity, Honor, respect, and they don't humiliate themselves by not acknowledging their own worth. The greatest thing that you can teach your children is to understand their worth, that you are valuable, you do matter. Greatest thing that you can teach your child. Zahir ibn Huram, the ex-slave who was a close companion of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet used to say about Zahir, he said, Zahir, badiyatuna, wa nahnu hadiratuhu. That Zahir is our desert man. When we go out to the Badia, when we go out to the Sahra, Zahir makes sure we're taken care of. And when Zahir comes into the city, we make sure Zahir is taken care of. One day he caught Zahir out in the marketplace selling his goods, and he walked up behind Zahir and he grabbed him from the back. And every time Zahir would turn around, the Prophet ﷺ would move so Zahir couldn't see who he was. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, jokingly, من يشتري مني هذا العبد? Who will buy this slave from me? And Zahir would say, Ya Rasulullah, if you mean me, he said, you will find me worthless goods. No one would buy me. And the Prophet ﷺ said, بَلْ أَنْتَ إِنْدَ اللَّهِ خَالِنْ he said, no, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are priceless. There's no price tag on you. You are priceless. The Prophet was teaching himself worth. Don't ever say about yourself, and a cassette, I don't matter. I'm nobody. He said, Rather to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are priceless. You are expensive. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can purchase you. In Allah That Allah has purchased from the believers their souls and their wealth in exchange for Jannah. Only Allah can purchase you. I am not for sale. You understand? My soul is not for sale. I don't have anything to sell you. Allah has already purchased my soul. And in Islam, it is haram to sell something twice. لا يجوزو أن يبيعو بضاعة مرة ومرتين مرة بس أما مرتين ما يجوز. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it haram for a man to sell something twice. I sell it to you and then before you come back to get it, I sell it to someone else for a higher price and then I give you your money back. لا والله ما يجوز.
Allah already purchased my soul. He said, "Man yistaghif yu'fuhu Allah, wa man yistaghni yuhni illa, wa man yatasabbar yusabbiruhu Allah." And whoever seeks to be patient, then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will make them patient. You say, "I wish I had more patience." Then you have to try to be patient. In situations that require patience, you have to force yourself to be patient. And then you will find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it easy for you. Zain? We got it? Everybody understand? Number two, if you change nothing, nothing will change. Number three is to remove yourself from places and people that are sinful, that cause you to commit sin. This is very important for people who come out of prison, Muslims who embrace Islam in jail and then go back around the same friends. You may not have any choice to go back to the same environments, but you do have a choice of the people that you allow into your life. And for some reason, we give people all types of access to our lives unrestrictedly as if they have more control of our lives than we do. You can not call someone. You can refuse to call someone back. You can refuse a meeting with someone. You can. It's your life. Someone calls you and says, hey, call me back. You see the number. You see the name on the number when it comes up. And you know this person is a trial for you. He's a fitna for you. She's a fitna for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَجَعَلْنَا بَعْضُكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ فِتْنَةٍ أَتَصْبِرُونَ We have made some of you a fitna for others. So some people, being around some people, could be a fitna for you. And you have to learn how to say, I'm not going to call this person back. No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to meet with you. You have to learn how to cut people off. It's your life. You don't owe anyone any explanation. You don't. If it's self-preservation to preserve your own religion, to preserve your own sanity, to preserve your relationship with God, if I have to do that, if cutting you off means that I get to have a better relationship with Allah, then consider yourself cut. My relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means more to me. So you have to remove yourself from places and people who are contributing to the sin in your life. There are people, places, people and places that psychologically trigger the desire to commit sin. Am I lying? Do you find yourself in certain places and then you're like, I, I, I'm going to commit sin if I go to this place. Or if I'm around this particular person or in the place where this person is, I'm going to sin. So places and people can be a fitna for us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says as it relates to people, He says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, on the day when the bottom, the oppressive person, will bite at his hands and he will say, would that I had not taken a, taken a path other than the path of the messenger. Woe be to me, shame on me, that I took such and such as a friend. Indeed, he has led me astray 
from the remembrance after it came to me. And indeed, shaitan is to the human being khadula. He will always abandon you in your time of need. Always. But listen to the conversation. This is the person now condemning himself for taking this person as a friend or that person as a friend because they indeed led me astray after the reminder came to us. This is why the Prophet ﷺ said, Let one of you look at who you take as a friend. Being around certain individuals can be a trigger for you to sin. And you have to learn how to cut people off. There's nothing selfish about that. And in some instances in our religion, you are allowed to be selfish. If you're lining up for the salah, and there's a spot in the first rank that is open, you are not allowed Islamically to tell someone else to take the place. You take the place. When you raise your hand to make dua for someone, you start with making dua for yourself first, and then you make dua for the other person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Sari'u ila al-khayrat. Race with one another to the good. There is a level of selfishness that we are allowed to have as Muslims. But not to extend yourself to other people to the extent where you lose your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the ghayr ma'qul. Ghayr ma'qul. But we find ourselves in this day and time overextending ourselves to people at the expense of our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the hadith of the man who killed 99 people, and that was as it relates to people, now let's talk about places. In the hadith of the man who killed 99 people, the Prophet said, in the hadith of the man who killed 99 people, he was directed to an island, a scholar, and he said that I killed 99 people, فَهَلِّ مِنْ Can I repent? And the scholar, the alim, said to him what any sane person would say, مَنْ يُحُولُ بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَ tawbah إِلَى اللَّهِ What can stop you from your repentance to Allah? Don't ever let anybody play God with you. Don't ever let anybody believe that you got to go through them in order to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are not my Jesus. I am not Christian and you are not Jesus. I don't owe you anything. My tawbah is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If I wronged you, then give me an opportunity to give you your haq back. But you're not going to dangle your haq in front of my face by saying, no, I don't accept it. I'll see you yom al-qiyamah. You're not going to see me yom because I made an attempt to give you your haq back that I took from you. I wronged you. And for that, I'm sorry. And I tried to restore your haq back to you. You refused to take it. I have nothing to do with that. I tried. 
but you refuse to accept my, my, my you know, my, I, I asked you for forgiveness and you refuse to accept it. It's no longer between me and you. It's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah will restore your haq to you, Yom al But don't ever let anybody dangle that in front of your face. No, I'm not going to forgive you. Okay, well, you don't forgive me. I'll take it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'll make dua for you, even though you don't forgive me. I'll make dua for you until I feel like I've repaid you. Right? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi He said that if someone does something good for you, then you should repay the pay, restore the favor. Give it back. He said, and if you don't have the wherewithal to give it back, then make dua for the person until you feel like you've repaid them. So if you don't accept my apology, that's okay. I'll make dua for you until I feel like I've repaid you. But you're not going to hold me hostage. You're not going to hold me prisoner because of some insecurity you have in your life. I'm sorry. I don't belong to you. This is a called a God complex. Where people in this time play the role of God. And I'm not going to let you do with that. I'm not Christian. You are not Jesus. So he said to the man, can I repent? He said, what can stop you from repenting to Allah? He said, but you have to leave this land. He said, go to this land over here. There are righteous people there worshiping Allah. Go worship Allah with them. He said, don't come back. Don't come back to this land. It's an evil place. This is the place where you killed 99 people, 100 people. Don't come back to it. And this is for our brothers and sisters in prison who feel the need to go back to the block, go back to the old neighborhood. Don't go back. That's the same place where you got 10 years. The same place where this person was murdered and that person was murdered and you go right back to the same block. What part of that don't you understand? So we have to distance ourselves from people and places. Number four, and I'll be very quickly with the last two, is to be sincere. Be sincere, be honest with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is another dilemma of our time where we paint this picture that we're perfect. We want everybody to believe that our lives are so perfect. You go to a person's Facebook page, all you see is the good of their lives, right? You see the pictures of here, pictures in Miami, pictures over here. And mashallah, when you scroll through their pictures, it just looks like they're having a grand old time. All the while, the person's suffering in the inside. But we can't let you know that we're suffering. In this society, in America, we want the American dream, which is actually a nightmare. When you consider all that you have to sacrifice to have it, you got to go to the bank and get a loan and go get the big, beautiful house. You got to marry the woman who's beautiful, but she's all brains and she's all beauty and no brains. <laughs> she can't offer you much. She's beautiful, though. She can't offer you much, though. She can't cook. The sexual relations is mundane. She doesn't understand Islam. She's not religious, but she's beautiful. Mashallah. You got it. But look at what you're sacrificing to be with her. She made you take a loan. She cut you off from your family. 
and vice versa with women and men as well. You got the man, he's handsome, but he's emotionally detached. He doesn't tell you he loves you. He buys you everything though. But he's never there when you really need him emotionally. When you're in crises emotionally, he's never there. But he buys you everything. You have the latest shoes, the latest jackets, mashallah, you have everything. You have the American dream, which is in fact a nightmare. The home that you live in, big, beautiful, huge home, with all rooms that are more exceed what you actually need. But you can barely afford any other bill in your life. Your mortgage is killing you. The oil that they have to come and put in the ground because you can't turn your heat on. Your house is cold because you can't warm it up because it costs money. That's the American nightmare. That's not the dream. The bank loans that you have to pay back that you will spend the rest of your life paying for. The generational debt that you transfer over to your children in the event of your demise. Under the American dream. Be sincere with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Be sincere with God. And God will be sincere with you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accommodate you because of your sincerity. And we understand this from the statement of the Prophet where he said, that Allah The Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that my servant doesn't come close to me a hand span except I, I come closer to him with an arm's length. And he doesn't come to me with an arm's length except to I come to him with a distance that is closer than that. And if my servant comes to me walking, I come to him running. And some of us, we need to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala running. Fafirru illallah. Run to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many of us, we need to. And that means, مَنْ أَتَى شَيْءٍ مِنَ الطَّاعَاتِ وَلَوْ قَلِيلًا بِالصِّدْقِ الْقَلْبِ أَثَّابَهُ اللَّهُ سُبْحَانَ وَتَعَالَى بِأَضْعَافِهِ وَأَحْسَنَ إِلَيْهِ بِالْكَثِيرِ Now whoever comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doing a little bit, but his heart is sincere, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward him and multiply his reward many times over, not because of the deed, but because of the sincerity behind it. A man came to the Prophet ﷺ, migrated from Mecca to Medina to be with the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet one day was distributing the war goods. Al-Qasim. Distributing the, the war goods to his companions and he gave the man some, war, some of the war booty. And the man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Ya Rasulullah, ma hadha? The Prophet ﷺ said, Hadha qasmun qasamtuhu lak. This is from the war goods. Take it, it's yours. He said, Ya Rasulullah, ma'ala hadha tabatuk. He said, I didn't follow you for this. I didn't follow you to be compensated. He said, Innama tabatuka li an urmiyaha huna amut fa'adkhul jannah. Bas. That's all I want. He said, I followed you so I could be shot in my neck with an arrow right here, die, and go to jannah. That's all I want. The Prophet ﷺ said, "In tasdukillah, tasduk." 
you are sincere, if you are honest in what you are saying, Allah will give you what you want. Another battle happened. There was a body laying on the ground with an arrow poking out of the neck. And the Prophet said, Ahua, Ahua, is, is that him? The Sahaba said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah, that's him. He said, Saddaq Allah fa saddaqum. That he was sincere with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah gave him what he wanted. Honesty with God. Genuinely honest with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you really want to stop committing the sin, you have to be honest with God in your, uh, uh, in your approach to getting rid of this thing in your life. I really want to stop committing this sin. And you have to be honest about it. Sahal ibn Hanif, he said that the Prophet said, Man Allah shahada bi sidqin, ballaghahu Allahu manazil al-shuhada wa in mata ala firashihi. Hadith is Sahih Muslim. The Prophet said, Whoever asked Allah for martyrdom, sincerely from his heart, he wants to die as a martyr. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give him the level of the shuhada of the martyrs, even if he dies in his bed. <laughs> You're in your bed. You just died in your sleep. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will still give you the level of martyrdom because of the sincerity that was in your heart. You have to be honest with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So... The last one, uh, number five, from the things that will help us, practical ways to help us give up sin, is to be make dua, sincerely, doing what is called tawassul. Tawassul is to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by some other deed that you've done, purely for His sake. Oh Allah, if I did this for your sake, then do this for me. It's a way of approaching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know this from the hadith of the three men from Bani Israel that were trapped in the cave. And one of them, he said to the rest of them, he said, Wallahi, ya ha'ula, la yunjikum illa sidq, fad'u kullu rajilin minkum bima ya'lam annahu kad sabaqa fihi. He said that we will never get out of this situation, meaning trapped in the cave, and that's, you know, uh, synonymous with many of us in our sins. We're trapped in this particular cave, trapped in this box that we can't get out of. We do good for a minute and then we fall right back into the sin. We do good for a minute and then we're right back into that box. He said, there is no escaping this cave today except by your sincere dua. So let every one of you look at the deed that he has done sincerely for the sake of Allah and let him call on Allah based upon that deed. And we know the one who fed his parents before he fed his children, the other one who desired his cousin and he said, لما وقعت بين رجليها نظرت إلي وقالت يا عبد الله اتق الله ولا تفض الخاتم إلا بحقي that when I got down in between her legs, she looked at me in my face and she said, Abdullah, O servant of God, fear Allah 
and don't do this except what is due right. Meaning through marriage. Don't do it like this. He said, and I was so afraid that I got up off of her and I told her to keep the money and I left. He said, if I did that, oh Allah, if I did that solely fearing you, seeking your pleasure, then remove the boulder from the mouth of the cave so we can get out. And then of course the, the third one. So the point that I'm making is that be sincere in your dua, not just making dua, but there's other ways to make your dua more impactful, more powerful, and that is doing what is called tawassul, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove something from you because of some deed that you've done. And it doesn't matter how insignificant. The Prophet taught us about a prostitute who was forgiven for her sins simply for giving a dog a drink of water. It wasn't about the deed itself. It was the sincerity behind the deed. The Prophet ﷺ taught us about Imra'a uh, al-Ghamidiyah, the woman who committed adultery during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And she came asking for repentance. And as they were beginning to stone her to death, Khalid and Walid grabbed the boulder and threw it on her. And some of the blood spilled on his face. And he said, Allah. May Allah disgrace this zania, this adulteress. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Mahlan, ya Khalid, Mahlan. He said, Wallahi innaha kattaba tawbatin la wusiat ala sabi'ina rajilin minkum la wasiat kum. Said this woman repented with a repentance that was so sincere that it would be enough to cover 70 of you. Her repentance would be enough to cover 70 of you. That's how sincere it was. So it's not necessarily the deed itself, it's the heart that is behind it. So, as we conclude, who can reiterate the five? Five things that we can do to help us stop committing sin. What was number one? Na'imun. Stay public. Stay woke. Sadaqa. Do, allow your sins to affect you. Don't let yourself walk away from the sin and, and just feel ease. Allow it to pain you, to cause you some pain. Right? Number two? Huh? Be selfish? Give us Alright, number two was if you change nothing, nothing will change. You have to initiate the change. Number three, remove yourself from people and places. Withdraw yourself from people and places that contribute to the sin. Number four, to be honest with God, to be sincere, and He'll give you what you want. And to make strong du'a sincere, make tawassul. Make your du'a effective by using something that you've done in the past only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sake to help Him rid you of whatever it is you're struggling with. So young people don't need to say, well, I'm sinning, I don't know how to stop, or whatever. Come on, we have practical, practical ways in our religion to help us stop committing sin. Yes.
But the thing is, he's saying that um, that if we do something and then we turn around and ask the law to give us something because of what we did, he said it just something about that just doesn't seem right. Why? Like, I mean, why would we do something? The thing is, is that it's 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 all right because the reason why you did it was for the sake of a law. And then you turn around and you ask Allah that if I did that for your sake, then do this for me. So it actually helps you to be actually more sincere because people, unfortunately, don't do what they do for the sake of Allah. They do it for other reasons. They do it for praise. They do it for, you know, whatever, position, status. They do it for other reasons. So actually looking forward to using that deed to help you make dua actually helps you to be sincere in the deed. And if you were to be honest with yourself, all of us, if we had to make dua right now based upon a deed that we did purely for the sake of Allah, it wouldn't be that simple for us to think about something that we did. We would really have to search for a particular deed that we've done sincerely, purely for the sake of Allah. It's not that easy. When you think about all of the, of all of the deeds that you've done, if you were being honest with yourself, is it really that easy for you to look in the archive of all of the deeds that you've done and pull something out and say, I did that for only for the sake of Allah? Most of our deeds are mixed with a whole bunch of other intentions. Was there, was there anything in the life of the Prophet ﷺ when he did it? Not necessarily with his deed, but the Prophet ﷺ did make tawassul. He made to wrestle with promises that Allah made him. He said, oh Allah, you promised me that you were going to do this, this, this. Come through on your promise. That's the same thing. It's called ilhaq fi dua. It's to, um, to insist that Allah respond to you because he made a promise in the Quran. So he didn't make to wrestle with ilhaq. But as it relates to using his deeds, no. But this is an authentic hadith collected in Sahih Bukhari. No question about it. And there are many ways to make tawassul, not just with your deeds, but as I said, even with ilhaq. During the battle of Badr, the dua that the Prophet made, he raised his hands until his ridah fell off of his shoulder. And he's like, oh Allah, you said that if you destroy this small grant and small band of people, there will be none left on the earth that will worship you. Oh Allah, you said, grant me the victory that you promised me. He's telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You promised me victory, now I'm asking for it. Yes, absolutely. You say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Oh Allah, you said in the Quran, That's what you said in the Quran, that if someone calls on you, you're going to respond. I'm calling on you, respond to me. You can ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm calling on you. Respond to me. You promise that anybody who calls on you, you would respond. I'm calling on you now. Respond. Musa salam, when he was running from Egypt to Median, and he laid down by a tree, and he was exhausted, he was hungry, was scared, and he said, "Rabbi inni bima anzalta min faqir." He said, "Oh my Lord, whatever you have prepared for me, I am in need of it right now. I need it now. Anything that is in the qadr that you have that is good for me." I am in need of it right now. This is ways that you communicate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dua is not just simply raising your hands and saying, Oh Allah, give me this. Oh Allah, give me that. There's a system to that. Saying for the Prophet to do it for you? 
you're asking Allah for the Prophet to do something for you? Give me an example. You're asking Allah to let the, the Prophet be your wasila. Or you can ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the shafa'ah of the Prophet. Yes, you can. For the sake of Allah, for your love, for Allah, just give me what I want. Like for the sake of Give me an example. No, you cannot make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of the love of someone else. That was not my wallet. It's not something that is mentioned. Mm -mm. Because the deed has to be from you. You can ask Allah for the shifa'ah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh Allah, I ask you for the shifa'ah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yomakliyam. But you can't say, oh Allah, give me this because of my love for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Or, oh, do this uh, because of my love for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And for your love of the Prophet There's nothing, I don't know anything in the Sunnah that validates that, that substantiates that. Waalaikum salam. He said um, that there is a narration, uh, an authentic narration, where the Sahaba used to um, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the uh, family members of the Prophet ibn Abbas. Uh, we ask you by the haqq of um, your cousin Ibn Abbas or something like that. And uh, that many of the Sahaba, it was mentioned that they used to do this. And this was out of their love for the Prophet And I said that that is, uh, um, that although that is true, I am not familiar with all of the details with that. That requires some detail and I'm not going to open that door. So you could ask, you know, some other scholars that may be more... Uh, privy to the details of that. I, I am aware of the, the narration, but as far as the tafasil, the, the details of it, will abide. Now. He said there's many people that go to graves and they ask people who they deem to be righteous in their graves to um, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for something that this is something that is haram by Jews. It's not permissible to go to the, 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 the grave of a dead person 
uh, and ask them to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for something. Um, there, you cannot make tawassul in that manner with someone who is already deceased. You can go to someone who is alive and you can say, make dua for me. Because they are capable of doing that. The person that is in the grave is not capable of making dua for you. And it's a tajawuz for dua. It's like you're exceeding the boundaries that are legislated for us in our uh, religion. All right, and, and as a general principle, that actions of ibadah, actions of worship, uh, this tawqifiyya, it only comes from Allah. No one can make up any act of worship. Meaning if we do not find it in the Qur'an, or we do not find that the Prophet ﷺ did it, then al-asl al-mani' is that it's haram, it's not permissible for us to do it. As it relates to acts of worship, al-asl fi al-mani' It is haram unless there's dalil to say, concrete dalil to say that we can do it. But as for adat, as it relates to how you get your hair cut, what type of clothes you wear, then al-asl fi al-halal That everything is permissible unless there is a text to say that it's not permissible. So in, in, in daily activities and how we live our lives, there's, there's, a, there's a general level of, you know, leniency. But as it relates to worship, ibadah, no, it's, it's very late, it's very narrow. And the only things that we are allowed to do is what we find the Prophet ﷺ doing or what was legislated in the Quran. Dua after the other. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. For someone else. It does mean a connection. Wasila means like connection. Wasila is means to connect with someone. Wasila here is what a scene, not what a sod. So it's two totally different words. I mean, he, he generally, I mean, it, it, he understood that this was a dilemma of young people. Evidenced by the hadith, where, and he's asking, like, do uh, parents, do adults, do we have an obligation to be lenient with the younger people in the community as we found that the Prophet ﷺ was lenient with the young guy. He asked permission to commit zina. And the Prophet didn't scold him, he didn't, you know, he wasn't harsh or difficult with him. He explained to him in a manner where, you know, it was almost like reverse psychology. And are we obligated to deal with the youth in the same manner? Yes. Especially with matters that are specific to the youth. You wouldn't, I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive that the Prophet ﷺ would have been a lot different. His demeanor would have been a lot different had it been someone who was older. Because this is something that is not characteristic of older people to sleep around with people. Evidenced by the hadith where the Prophet said, 
that there's three people who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will neither speak to on the day of judgment, nor will he purify for them for their sins, and for them is a painful punishment. And the first one was Shaykh Zanin. It's an older person who commits zina. Why? Because the older person is almost oxymoronic. Because you wouldn't expect an older person to still sleep around with people. Older person, then you've usually had an experience with marriage. So you know the value of marriage. You know the sanctity of it. And for an older person to still commit zina, to still fornicate and have a girlfriend, is oxymoronic. You don't get to 40 years old, 50 years old, and you're still having girlfriends. Like, I mean, it's, just, it's an oxymoron. Your age and your maturity and your experience should dictate otherwise. Because Zena and lack of self-control is characteristic of young people, not older people. So the Prophet ﷺ dealt with that situation differently because look at who he was talking to. He was talking to a shab. He was talking to a young man. And desires as... Statistically, medically speaking, children are born impulsive. You guys follow me? Children are born impulsive. Boys more impulsive than girls. That's why we're just very reactionary. We're very, you know, erratic in our movements and our decisions. You know, we make a decision, we drive, you know, especially as fathers, you know, your teenage sons drive you crazy in their teenage years because they're very impulsive. They want this right now. They don't care about consequences. They don't think about what happens later. They're impulsive. Boys' impulsivity does not begin to calm down until they're about 25. Until they're about, I'm talking about medically speaking. Their impulsivity does not calm down until they're about 25. And then it begins to slow down and they start to make mature decisions. And it's no wonder the Prophet said that the peak of maturity for men is 40. 15 years later, you've now learned to be more mature. You've learned how to have you know, self-control, discipline, right? And to still commit zina during that time, then the person is deserving of that, per that punishment the Prophet Sallallahu promised. So yes, as we're dealing with young people, we have to understand it's not a matter of halal and haram. Most of the time when young people engage in matters that are haram, they already know that it's haram. So when you come to the person and you say, it's haram for you to do that, it's like, duh, it's haram. I know that, right? Whoopty, it's haram. So that is not a motivator for us and many of our parents were just stuck in this mentality where it's like it's haram man Jews don't do that it's like that's not going to stop them from doing it sometimes you need to explain to them the consequences and let them understand that if you do this these are the consequences that you're looking at and well like a shetnuk and to you is your way if you decide to do that as parents we're not there to hover over them to make sure they don't make mistakes we are there to be the safety net to catch them after they make the mistake. Let me show you how to correct this so you don't do that again. Let me show you how to correct this. All right? But, you know, we have to learn that, you know, and this behavior of haram, <clears throat> this behavior has chased many of our children away from this land. Because we are speaking a different language. Our children's experience with Islam is going to be totally different than our experience with Islam. Totally different. He had his hand and then...
how can we regulate the internet with our children? Um, the first thing that you have to, to do in order to regulate that is that before you introduce your child to the world of the internet, either through cell phone or through iPad or through a laptop or a computer, you have to instill within them consciousness of God. They have to know that no matter what you do, whether on the internet, off the internet, God is watching you. There has to be a level of God consciousness with our children before we even introduce them to the world of the internet. And then that God consciousness will direct them. That will, not, that will guide them. They will know what instinctively without you even saying anything to them. I'm not going to look at that. No, that's wrong. I'm not going to look at that. Because they already know. We think I'm going to give them the cell phone and then when I see them on pages that are haram, I'm going to block the page. We're being reactionary. We have to be proactive. And that is to introduce your children to God first. So they have a consciousness, a level of consciousness. Even if it's not from the angle that this is haram, it's just that it's, 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 not, it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. You're better than that. You, you, you don't have to look at that. You're better than that. We have to instill that in our children. Then when you introduce them to the world of the internet, you have to make them understand that they have to be responsible. There's a mesuliyah. There is a responsibility that comes along with having the cell phone. If I give you the cell phone, that means that you are now responsible for what you look at, what you watch, the sites that you go on. And of course, as a parent, you know, periodically you're going to monitor you know, if your child's cell phone is on your, you know, on your on your line, then you can monitor from statements, the you know, the sites that they go on, the uh, the phone calls they made, the phone calls they've received. You can you can monitor all of that without even looking at their cell phone. And then, of course, you know, you make them understand that if you violate this trust, this mesuliyah, this amana that I'm giving you then I am, it's a privilege. The phone is a privilege. I'm going to take it back from you. Because you violated that. And this is teaching our children to be an adult. The moment you put a cell phone in your child's hand, you have now given that child a huge amanda. And if the child is not mature enough to deal with that, then don't do it. If the child is immature, you hear them having conversations about things that are haram, you've caught them in acts of haram before, why would you put a cell phone in a, in, in a child's hand like that? No. You have to monitor and look at the child and see if they're actually ready for that. Right? Allah tells us in the Quran um, that do not give those who are not mentally ready. Don't give those who are ignorant or not mature, right, your wealth that Allah has given you to sustain your life. So this is talking about putting money in the hands of a child, possibly, who is immature. There's some of your children who, you know, you wouldn't put money in their hands. And then there's some of your children who they're very good, very mature, they're very responsible. And it's the same way with the cell phone. You got to be, you look at who's responsible, who's not. All right? But giving the child the phone and then going in and blocking the site, blocking the site, blocking the site, that's, that's counterproductive. And that's reactionary. We don't want to be reactionary. We want to be proactive. Say, before I give you the cell phone, before I buy you the cell phone, I'm going to give you a trial. I'm going to give you a phone that you don't have any access to the Internet. 
And let's see how you manage that phone. Because even aside from going on different websites, some children are irresponsible in terms of the device. They break it, they drop it. And, I mean, you're not going to go spend, you know, $400, $500 on an iPhone and give it to a child who's irresponsible. So even from that angle, you still have to make sure that the child is responsible. Last one, Michelle. Uh, uh, quick He said that he's um, working with someone who uh, is a convert to Islam, converted in prison, and he's home now, he's working, but um, a lot of his behaviors are still uh, indicative of someone who is not even a Muslim. You know, girlfriends, you know, smoking, you know, partying and things like that, but the person says they are a Muslim. And you working alongside this person, you're trying to give the person dawah, trying to, you know, say to them in a nice way that, you know, the life that you're living is not necessarily, you know, the life of a Muslim. Um, but, you know, at what point do you draw the line with your relationship with this person? You don't want to just cut the person off and make the person, you know, treat them very coldly. And then it causes them to not have any safety net, not have anyone to go to uh, and possibly go further in their sin. Uh, but also, you don't want that around you, you know, so how do you, where do you draw the line? When a person converts to Islam, there are, there are different types of people that convert to Islam. There are some people who had a religious background, and they kind of, their transition into Islam is very easy. No, 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 I'm, I'm just, hear me out first. I'm just trying to give you the, just trying to paint a picture for you. When people convert to Islam, there are some people who um, were religious before, you know, they became Muslim. So their transition into Islam is, is fairly easy because most of what they're going to find in Islam is what they found in Christianity or whatever faith system they came from. Just a little bit more enhanced and a little bit more detailed and structured. So it's it's very simple transition for them. All right. Um, then you have those who convert to Islam who... Um, were not religious at all and their transition uh, of course is, is different some people were just tired of you know being in the world you know without a connection to God although they weren't necessarily religious they were conscious of God and they're gonna they're gonna struggle with some things but eventually they find their way and then there's some people who were not religious at all had no consciousness of God, had no connection to God, they embraced Islam for whatever reason they embraced Islam and they don't really see a distinction between their life as a Muslim and their life as a non-Muslim. The transition was simply converting from one religion to the next. These people, you have to give them time to find their way. So you have to learn how to love the person from a distance. 
It's similar to a family member. You grow up with a family member, a cousin, a sister, a brother, you know, family gatherings or whatever. You see the person, your heart aches when you see the person like that. You still love them because, you know, that's your, your sibling, that's your family member. But at the same token, you know, for lack of better words, you can't really rock out with them like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, nah, I'm not getting in your car. I'm not going nowhere with you. I love you. We cool. But, you know, I'm, I, I have to create a barrier between myself and you so I don't begin to dislike you more. You understand what I'm saying? So you have to just love the person from a distance. So you have to tell the person that, you know, you know, I, while I understand that, you know, this is your struggle and eventually I don't want to become judgmental towards you, but at the same token, I still have to protect myself. And I want to continue accepting you as my brother and looking at you in a certain way, but because of your lifestyle and because of your disregard for Islam, I have to create a little distance, you know, I have to create a little distance, that doesn't mean I love you any less, you're still my brother in Islam, but you're going to see me become a little distant from you, you know, don't take it personally, that's just me safeguarding myself, you know, and perhaps that will be the, the realest conversation that you can have with him, that is the most honest conversation that you can have with him. Telling him his lifestyle is haram or whatever, that's neither here nor there. That's not going to stop him from doing what he's doing. But perhaps if he cares about his relationship with you, if there's some value there, he will see how his actions are affecting you. And perhaps that will make him become a little bit more aware of himself. And even if he doesn't change right then and there, as he moves on in life, he will start to realize that I'm affecting people around me. Maybe I need to fix me. Maybe I need to change. You know? Maybe. And if he doesn't, then it's no loss on you. I'm really like, you safe you safeguarded yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. He said, wouldn't it be better to protect your child from making a mistake rather than allowing the child to make the mistake and then say, see what happened to you, perhaps you shouldn't have done that. Um, but there's a famous statement, I'll give you one in Arabic and then I'll give you one in English. Um, they say, As-Sa'id man wa'idha bi nafsihi wa shaqiyun man wa'idha that the successful one is the one that learns from other people's mistakes and the wretched one or the unsuccessful one is the one who learns from his own mistakes 
that's the statement in Arabic. Meaning, you can learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have to repeat the same mistakes that other people have done. You can learn from the other person's mistakes what not to do. But to fall into the mistake yourself, um, you're kind of depriving yourself because you saw that this person made the mistake and then you turned around and you did it and you fell into the same thing. That's not smart. They say, we say in English that experience is the best teacher. Basically summing that up. So sometimes you can tell a child, so you're blue in the face, not to do this, don't do that, this is what's going to happen, and the child is still going to do it anyway. So my, my theory is, rather than burden myself with talking to a blue in the face, because I'm one of those people, I don't like to repeat myself. Like, you know, if I told you once, especially when you're dealing with teenagers, you have to figure it out. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not that you're, it's not that you're letting them make the mistake. You realize that the child is hard-headed. The child is going to do what they're going to do anyway. You're, you're not going to be able to stop that. But what you're there to do is to make them understand that when you fall, when you fall on your face, which I know you will, I'll be there to help you pick yourself back up. You understand? That's what I'm saying. But you're talking about children. I'm talking about teenagers. <laughs> Whole different ball game. <laughs> Whole different ball game. Wait till they become teenagers, and we'll revisit this conversation. <laughs> right. Well, I'm talking about teenagers. They, they, especially the boys. They just, they don't. They get to a point. It's not that they're hard headed. It's not that they're hard headed. It's just that they've reached a point where they believe that they are men. And they can now make their own decisions, which they can. And you've done all of what you're talking about when they were little. <laughs> you've told them over and over repeatedly when they were little. Now they've gotten to a point where they, they believe that they can disregard what you say because they look at you as your advice is being antiquated and you don't know what you're talking about. It's a new time. I got it all figured out. The same thing teenagers usually go through. We, went, we all went through it. And I'm saying that for me as a parent, the best way for me to deal with that is to say, you are responsible for yourself. I'm there to help you pick up the pieces. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I cannot make your life for you. You want to make your mistakes. My job is to be the safety net for you. When you fall, I'll be there to pick you up. But, you know, and I'm not going to say I told you so because you have to figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Inshallah, we'll stop here. You got, you got it. Go ahead. I got nothing but time. Yes, it is. So the 
every one of us has a garden to be laid. He will stay and never to surround his head. Rufa'at Mumadil Khatawa and Nusiyan almost took Rufa'at. We have also the one that you can say with the Ahabira. Do they make two Rufa'at? I mean, two sectors. That's enough. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, he's going back to uh, the hadith about, he said some Sufis, they actually beat themselves or cut themselves uh, when they make a mistake in their salat. And of course, this is guru, this is extreme, um, and uh, Islam would never condone, you know, self, to damage yourself, to hurt yourself, right, in, in that manner. Um, he said that, you know, in the example that we gave, the hadith, the sahabi, he gave his whole garden away. As a sadaqah because of a mistake that he made in his salah. It's a mistake. Can't you just make two rak'ah or two sujood, two sajdas, or even pray again or pray more sunnah prayers again for that? Let's say um, you wake up for salatul fajr. And this is probably the, the most difficult example that I can think of. Right? I'm going to the most extreme example. I don't know about you, but for me to wake up late for salatul fajr, I, I feel like a complete hypocrite. I feel like less than a Muslim. And even if you get up, you make the salat, you, you don't feel the same. How do you compensate for that feeling of, I missed one of the most important prayers, the start of my day is Salatul Fajr. No, it's a mistake. It's a mistake, without a doubt. It's a mistake. The Prophet ﷺ said that the pen has been lifted from three people. Okay? Uh, the uh, uh, There's no sin in my ummah for what they do out of forgetfulness. The Prophet ﷺ said, That whoever oversleeps or forgets to pray, then let him pray. That is, that is the... Making up for what was missed. I'm talking about the feeling, the shu'ur. The feeling that I missed something that was important. And to just walk away and say, okay, well, I made the salat up. And to move along, you're missing a critical component. And that is the feeling of netma, the feeling of remorse, and the feeling of regret. Which would prompt you not to do that again. If he gave away his garden... Because he missed Turaka, that means that that was important. You had some of the some of the scholars of the past who said uh, Saeed ibn Musayyib, who said that I never mafatetni mafatetni raka ula mundo arba'ina sena that the first raka never missed me. I never missed takbira to ihram for forty years. They took this stuff very serious, and in today's time, we don't have that sense of you know, pain. We don't feel that 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 pain when we make a mistake. It's just like, oh, it's a mistake. Not a not a big deal. Allah forgives. Allah Rahim. And that mentality is what creates, opens doors for us to continue sinning. The Prophet said that the believer, he sees his sins like what? That he sees his sins like a boulder getting ready to fall on top of him. He said the munafiq. He sees his sins like a fly.
The hypocrite, he sees his sins like a, a fly that lands on his nose and just goes like, not a big deal. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah, you can make up for the mistake. That's not a problem. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the shu'ur, the feeling. And you hiss. It's like you, you made a mistake as it relates to the right of Allah over you. Look at how we react when we feel like we've, we've wronged someone. You step on someone, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, uh, you know, I didn't mean to do that. All right, and then when we make a mistake as it relates to Allah, it's like, ah, oh, I can just make two rakah, or I'll do this and make up for it. Allah, Allah will forgive me, it was a mistake. No, we don't want to create that feeling. We want to feel the pain of what we've done, that it was wrong. So if you wake up for late for Salatul Fajr, perhaps you could say to yourself, because I woke up late for Salatul Fajr, I'm going to give $50 random to the first person that I see. Sadaqah, Ibn Wahab, right? Muhammad Ibn Wahab. Uh, he stopped back and by people, right? For the two dirhams. Yeah. Okay. Quran says, Wala tell me so on Fusakum, Wala Tanabas of Lang Hall. Every time that I backbite someone, Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you. 